My name is Liz and I'm the rector here at Incarnation and once again it's lovely to welcome people both into the chapel and on Zoom. Everyone is so welcome in our worship this morning. Kids, I'm going to just make a suggestion to you. If you want something to do while I'm talking over the next little while, I wonder if you would like to try and draw the Trinity. Now I said at the very beginning of the service that you could count how many times it comes up, but what do you think the Trinity actually is? How would you represent it? Let me just warn you, there are many pitfalls that lie in your path, but have a go and let's see what you come up with by the end of the service. You might want to listen out though, because some, we're going to read something in a moment which describes the Trinity in kind of beautiful words, and that might help. Adults, you're welcome to have a go as well, but this might be something that you've tried and failed at in the past, so just to warn you too. And to be honest, the early church, right from the days of the early church, people have struggled, struggled to find words or images to express the truth of our God, this kind of three-in-one God. And to be honest, people have stumbled into errors all through the centuries as they've tried to nail down what the Trinity is. And we had the early church councils and the creeds that have developed in order to help. And most weeks here at church, we say together the Nicene Creed as a kind of foundational statement of what we believe. And then on some other Sundays, like baptisms, we might say the Apostles' Creed. But I wonder how often you have together read the third creed, which we hold on to, what's so-called the Athanasian Creed. And you've got it printed out on your handout for the service today. So whether you're at home or whether you're at church, you might want to turn to that right now and pick up a pen. And I'm going to encourage you to write all over that creed as we talk about it a little bit this morning. Perhaps if you're looking at it in your BCP, you might not want to scribble on it, but feel free. It's your BCP. It's on page 769 at the back there. Now, one little thing which I, I need to say before we get going. Um, Athanasius probably didn't write this, so just put aside that kind of longing in your own heart. It's probably written by someone called Vincent, but maybe the Vincentian Creed didn't sound as good. I don't know, but uh, anyway, there, there are still some debates about that. Becky Keller and David Griffin are two of our um, incarnation experts on creedal statements. So if you have any, any concerns or thoughts about this, have a little word with Becky after the service or David if he's online on Zoom, and uh, they will actually tell you everything you need to know. But the first point I want to make is one which I've already hinted at. We can talk about the Trinity, but we're never going to nail it down. And the beautiful thing about the Trinity is that we can apply this word that it is a mystery. And it is a mystery. But that doesn't mean we don't use our imaginations and our minds and our ideas to try and help us just get a little bit deeper into what that mystery is all about. Because as with any good mystery, it's as you engage with it that actually the mystery becomes bigger and even more beautiful. So have a look at your handout and get ready to hear it. And we're going to invite Becky and Walter to come and read it to us now. So follow along on your handout. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, 
neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreate, the Son uncreate, and the Holy Ghost uncreate. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also they are not three incomprehensibles, nor three uncreated, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. And yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord. And yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be both God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there be three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is the, of the Father alone, not made, not created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is a four or after other, none is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal. So that in all things, as is aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshiped. He therefore that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, is God and man, God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father, as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father, as touching his manhood. Who, although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sitteth on the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. At whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies and shall give account of, for their own works. And they that have done good shall go into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved.
So that's good, crystal clear. <laughs> I wonder what words slept out at you as you heard that reading or as you read it, whether they were phrases that caught your attention. Kids, perhaps now you've got a little bit more material to begin to play with as you think about what it might look like to draw the Trinity. A few observations, though. Did you notice that it started and ended with statements about us, kind of a warning? Statements about that if we want to be saved, we need to hold on to the Catholic faith, and which it then goes on to explain. And just in case you're wondering, don't forget, that's not Catholic as in Roman Catholic, it's Catholic as in all-embracing, a totality, everything. This creed, above all creeds, emphasizes that there is something really, really important about the Trinity that we need to try and grasp. And it's something really important about how we view ourselves fitting in to eternity. And those early Trinitarian writers believed the doctrine of the Trinity only really made sense to the human mind in terms of a story of salvation. So let's start with a few facts about the Trinity that you might have picked up as we heard that read. Sometimes it's easier to say what God is not. He's not three gods. He's not three personalities. He's not three people. He's not three substances. But he is three relations in a singular divine substance. And you might have heard those words before. The Trinity, one substance, or there's a fancy word for that, ousia, or three persons, hypostases. One substance, three persons. The first problem we nearly all hit at this point is, the, is the, the fact that this word person, we kind of interchange with the word people. But it's not three people. The people is, God is not three people, it's three persons. So how do we get our minds around this? One thing is that you might note is if we think about three objects, so say for example you look at the table and you see two candles and a book stand, each of them takes up their own piece of space. So three objects, or three people, would take up three amounts of space. But what about instead of trying to see the Trinity, we tried to listen to it instead? And so Katie's going to first of all play a note. Okay, listen to that note. Can you hear how it fills the space around us? It doesn't occupy one little bit of tangible, I can't catch the note. Play the note again, Katie. Okay, Katie, now play us a chord. Three notes. Okay, again, the notes all come together. You can't separate them out. They've made this glorious three-note chord. Sometimes there's a lovely theologian called Jeremy Begbie, and I was reading this in what he wrote this week, and there's this lovely, it's a, a different way. Perhaps we're too limited in trying to think we can see the Trinity. Perhaps instead we should let our imaginations hear the Trinity. Thank you, Katie. So maybe instead of drawing a picture, you might like to compose a tune. And so this important thing about God so far is that there are three persons. And those three persons each have their own role. And so let's listen to how the creed unpacked this. We are reminded that the three persons of the God are all eternal. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have all been in the Trinity eternally. Jesus didn't suddenly pop up at the incarnation. 
He has always been a part of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit also didn't just suddenly come after the ascension of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has always been a part of the eternal Trinity. You simply can't take one of them out and still have our God. And so every time we say God, we are referring to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all together. The Creed also does a lovely job of reminding you that they are all almighty. They're all God. They are all Lord. They don't all have the same purpose, but they are all co-eternal, co-equal. And God as a whole is to be worshipped as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And at the very heart, this reminder that there are three persons draws us to the most critical feature of God. And this is that at the very heart of God is a relationship, that there are these three persons. And the core of who God is is the love that the three persons of the Trinity show for each other. God the Father pouring out his love to the Son. God the Son pouring out his love to the Father and the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit pouring out love to God the Father and God the Son. Love constantly flowing between them. If God was simply a one, there wouldn't be that same love. There wouldn't be this idea of relationship. And so God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have this beautiful interplay of love. And so much of it that it flows out. It flows out beyond the Godhead. Love is meant for sharing. And the thing about God is that love just is so big that he draws other people into it. He draws us into it. It's a way of drawing us into relationship. And I had a lovely example, well, we've had a lovely example this week of, of seeing the way that love begets more love, how love increases love, in that our um, second son and his wife had their first child. And they loved each other before that, and they loved this kind of baby in utero, but, but seeing them with their baby, there's now more love, more love in the world because of the birth of little Summer. This is what God does. He makes more love. Love comes with, there is more of love every time we see people being drawn in. And perhaps you know people who exercise love like this by constantly drawing others into relationship. And God delights so much in relationship that it's not only restricted to us, but I think that's part of the whole of creation story. The way that the cicadas and the birds and the rocks and the trees are all invited to pour out their praise and love for God, their delight in being creation. Love begets love. And God delights in this relationship, and he delights in being in love and having us love him back. But he also then, of course, as we know, gives us the freedom as to whether we want to be in that loving relationship with him. He doesn't want us to love him as some kind of abstract deity. He loves us because he wants, and he wants to be in a personal relationship with us. He wants us to actually be his children in a familial relationship, connected. And so we're given the example of Jesus. Jesus, God who we see in Jesus. God coming and incarnating as a tangible person who was seen and touched and known. Jesus, fully God and fully known, 
offers us all a way to know this Trinitarian God. He's kind of like the public persona of God. He invites us to see him and thus to see the Father. He invites us to know him and then to know the Holy Spirit. God self-reveals through Jesus. And it's interesting to note that we are being conformed to the likeness of the Son. And that's why we're given the Son so that we can see and know what that personhood is like. We aren't asked to conform to the likeness of the Father or the Holy Spirit, as they just don't have a bodily form we can relate to. So Jesus is our example. And Jesus shows us what God is like. We look at Jesus, we look at the face of God. And so by reading scripture, we can get an even fuller picture of who God is. By inviting the Holy Spirit to teach us and be in us, we get drawn not only to know Jesus, but be in Jesus. Sometimes Jesus and the Holy Spirit are described as the two hands of God, both equal and neither can replace or substitute for the other. It's lovely to pick up the thread of how we see the Holy Spirit turning up all through the Old Testament, but also then in the Son's incarnation, the baptism, ministry, death, and resurrection, and then, of course, after the ascension. But the Holy Spirit is not merely an instrument of Jesus' presence. Rather, he is the person of the Trinity who forms Christ within us and renders him present to us, as one theologian puts it. Things about this whole idea of being drawn into a loving relationship with God is that we also then call to be reconciled to other people. Because God didn't just call me and ask me to be reconciled, but God calls all of us to be reconciled because He doesn't have favorites. He doesn't just see one group of people, He sees all as beloved, whether male or female, June or Greek, the whole list, everybody he sees as beloved. And God delights in building relationships, community, for reconciling people groups and nations and tribes, forming a new humanity. And he wants us to be united, not identical. And the delight of the Trinity is that we see difference even within relationship. Perfect unity has distinctives and differences. And so the Holy Spirit teaches us to reach beyond ourselves, reaching perhaps to people who are not our first choice of people to love. Two weeks ago, Amy invited us to think about our spheres of influence and where we reign. I thought that was a lovely phrase. And today I want to remind you that as we reach out to people around us, we're doing so not with a bunch of facts, but it's to invite them in to this loving relationship. And as we pour out love to others, that is what drives us to pushing back against injustice. It what drives us to fighting for social action because we know that we have a love of a Trinitarian God which is pushing out to other people, looking for more of the now of the kingdom of God. And if we don't love, and delight in our relationships with others. All those conversations will be kind of dry and awkward and painful for us and for those who receive it. We have to love the lowly, the downtrodden, because we are loved. And one of the things about this is that it can also then help us to avoid us-them thinking. 
I was chatting with a friend of mine about this recently, and she was saying how there can be this tendency in our individualistic culture to kind of look at someone and see how they fit down to the seventh degree of connection, or seventh decimal place, rather. And there you go, as a mathematician, I was like, oh, yay, decimal places in a sermon, how nice. Um, so as we get down to decimal places, we want people to conform, and once they've conformed all the way down to here to seventh decimal place, then we go, oh, yeah, we like that person. We'll be in relationship with them. I think the Trinity invites us to think of people rather differently, not to see if they've checked the boxes and decided whether we are compatible, but to say, this is a person who has been made by God, and how do we risk loving them? Because we are primarily constituted by a covenantal relationship with God and with each other, we must delight when we see difference. So when we do find ourselves slipping into an us-them mentality, Stop yourself and think these are the people who are ultimately going to be worshipping around the throne with me throughout eternity with Jesus. So how do I love them now? Don't silo. So first of all, always remember that you are loved and that Jesus went to the cross for people who perhaps you don't like very much. And this is a slightly in, in, in whatever, but I uh, listened to Esau Macaulay giving the um, commencement address at Neshota House this last week at the graduation. And he was talking to a bunch of Anglicans and Episcopalians. And he essentially said to them, be really content. He was saying he liked being an Anglican and he likes his position of orthodoxy. He liked how he understands scripture and theology. But he said, don't be tempted to want to destroy the other. Bear in mind that they've come to their decisions and we all ultimately will all worship at the throne of Christ throughout eternity together. And of course, we do need to know our own position. We do need to know that God is a God who conveys ethical truth, moral values. And so we keep reading scripture carefully, seeking to have solid theology and making sure that we listen to scripture not grasping too tightly our culturally biased individualistic views that drive our decimal places positions on all the things that we can list out, whether it's politics or race or abortion or sexuality or all the things that we do care about. But we come before the cross and we prostrate ourselves before God saying, how then do we live in a position of love towards other people? How do we shift away even from the us, them, and to become we? And as we are conformed to Christ, I believe the gap between our decimal places will lessen. As we get to shake off some of our individualism and seek the body, good of the body of Christ, we will all be more conformed to the likeness of Christ. And our understanding of who God is and what those ethical positions are and biblical truth will deepen and we will all be transformed both individually and corporately. So today, let's rejoice in the tri-unity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us delight in the self-giving love of each person of the Trinity. Let us be so grateful that we are welcomed into God by that overflowing, perichoretic dance of love between the persons. I couldn't really think where to fit it in, but I'm going to finish with this quote by Karl Barth, who said, the triunity of God is the secret of his beauty. If we deny this, we have a God without radiance, without joy, and without humor. 
And I invite you now to take your copy of the Athanasian Creed, or Vincent's Creed, as I'm going to call it now, and maybe just think, what was the, what was the point that really took my attention there as we were reading that? Where, what is it that you still want to understand a little bit more fully? We're going to have a moment of silence. Can you use it to give thanks for the mystery of God, who is three persons in one substance, and one who delights to love. Heavenly Father, we thank you, good Father, precious Jesus and Holy Spirit. We pray that we will come to know our Trinitarian God more fully and to love each other more lavishly. Amen.